Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today's lesson is a continuation of the ongoing study of the book of Daniel. This little Old Testament book is filled to capacity with its 12 chapters, and today we will be looking at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Doug has titled this lesson, Resurrection and Judgment. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to visit our class and enjoy the teaching when you are in the area. Well, I see that Doug is ready at the podium, so without further comment, here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We have been studying the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel, and I want us to look back at just a few things in preparation for our study on verse 3. Now, we looked at verse 1, and that was the verse in which Michael, the archangel, arose to stand up on behalf of God's chosen people, Israel. He's standing up for them in an unprecedented time. You know, it's interesting, if you were to go to Israel and you'd say, tell me your thoughts on the Holocaust, what they would say to you is what almost everybody in that nation would say, never again. Unfortunately for them, never again is coming. And it's going to be worse than anything they have ever seen. The prophet Zechariah says that two-thirds of the Jewish people who are alive at the time are going to die in that seven-year period, most of them in the final three and a half years, where it's going to be an unprecedented time of distress. We're looking probably at 10.12 million Jews dying. There will be some, though, that make it through, those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in this tribulation period, there will be some people that come out of it who make it through and who aren't killed even though they have become believers, either at the witness of the 144,000 or the witness of the two witnesses. Then we went to the second verse in that chapter. And the second verse talks about a future resurrection. Now, this is the resurrection that was known by Daniel the prophet. He doesn't know as much about the resurrection as we do. If we had Daniel here, or we went back in time, maybe is a better way, we could really school Daniel. Any of you would know more about it than Daniel did. But we learned that there were three future uh, resurrections for believers. There's the first fruits, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the general harvest, which is the resurrection of the church. All believers who were born again during the church age. Then there will be a final resurrection of believers at the end of the tribulation period. All the Old Testament saints together with the tribulation saints, those who were killed. 
and all of them will be resurrected. But Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is the first real time in the Old Testament that it talks about a resurrection of unbelievers. That resurrection occurs after the millennial kingdom and the sorrowful time that it would be. A uh, second thing we looked at last week was the fact that you could not survive where you're going to be in the body that you're living in right now. Your body is going to have to be changed. It talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and 51, where it says this. Well, before we read, let's pray. Father, as we open your word and we seek to understand what you have told Daniel and how it applies to us, help me to be faithful in sharing what you've showed me this week. Help me to be faithful in communicating the urgency and the need for the correct motivation. Help us to see that we will stand before you in a type of judgment. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this new body. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to be able to go into the presence of Almighty God in the flesh and blood body that you have and that you know. It would not survive. But instead, he says, nor does perishable inherit imperishable. But I tell you a mystery that you will not all sleep, that you will be changed. So the apostle is telling us upon our resurrection or our retrieval, if you're alive at the time of the rapture, which seems more and more likely these days, our bodies will be changed. And the reason is our physical makeup will not withstand what is ahead of us. Now, did you notice that he said this has been a secret? Why does he say that? Well, let's hold that thought for just a minute, because I want to talk about the future existence at the time Daniel was writing of the church. Now, this is important for us to understand. It is a key doctrine of the mystery of the church and the rapture of the church. So the first thing I want to do is I want us to look at a passage in Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 25. It says this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for the long ages, but is now manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. Now I want us to really unpack verse 25 so that we can see it. And the first thing I want you to look at is this, where it starts. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting phrase. Whose gospel is Paul speaking of? He's actually speaking of his gospel. That is the gospel given to him. Now, is it different than any other of the gospel given to the apostles? No. But you see, the other apostles were given their gospel teaching and instruction when Jesus was here on the earth. Paul wasn't there to get it. Now, what is he establishing? What is being established and what he's talking about is the church. And I want you to see that here. But there's a question that people want to ask, and it's, wait a second, my gospel, what is that? I'm going to have to ask you to 
hold that question for just a second until we get to Ephesians 3. But I want you to see, what is being established first is the church. The second thing is, there's the revelation of the mystery. This revelation of the mystery is the revelation of what? The mission, but more importantly, it's a body, the church. Did Daniel know about the church? No, it's the church's mission. It wouldn't be any one particular person. Right. And what Kim is saying is, the, the church is all about its mission. If the church doesn't have a mission, what use is the church? The Unitarian church, then. <laughs> well, Unitarian church, yeah. Let's not even bring the, get me started on that. But here's the thing. When was the church revealed the first time? In the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's the 16th chapter. It's the first, what? The upper room. No, because this is when Jesus came to the disciples and said, who do people say that I am? And it said, and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. And he said, and he told him what was going on and that this revelation would be the bedrock of the church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. First time it's mentioned chronologically in the scriptures. And he says, so the revelation has occurred. Now, there are a number of people who are saying, well, no, they knew about the church long before Jesus came. No, they didn't. And it's important. We're going to try and answer that. Why is it important? But notice what it says about this revelation. According to the revelation of the ministry, which has been kept secret for long ages past. Now, Ask ourselves this question. Who's keeping the secret? Well, before you answer that, you know, in my family, immediate family, there's Julie and I. My business involves keeping secrets. One of us, of those two, seems to be much better at keeping secrets than other, the other of the two. Now, I'm not going to mention any names here, but who's keeping this secret? God is. Now, can you think of anybody better at keeping secret than God? No, nobody can keep a secret better than God. And he's kept it, which has been kept secret for long ages past. Did he know it when he created Adam? Of course he did. Did he know him when Adam fell? Yes, he did. Did he know it when he was giving Daniel this prophecy? Yes, he did. But he didn't allow the secret to be revealed. He wasn't even revealed when Jesus came. It was finally revealed in the upper room. That's when we came. This was Dawn indicated earlier. That's when the secret was revealed. Now look down in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Here again, who's writing Ephesians? Paul. Was he there with the 12 disciples? One of which wasn't a believer. And no, he wasn't. And he wasn't there to learn from Jesus. But the question is, did he learn from Jesus? And the answer is yes. And he says, by revelation. Well, what revelation is he talking about? Is he talking about the Old Testament scriptures? No, because there's no revelation of the church there. It started on the road to Damascus. But the road to Damascus was only the start. He learned about Jesus the Messiah. And he was saved on the road to Damascus. 
But then he had to be taught. Who was there to teach him? If he was going to be an apostle, who had to teach him? So he left Damascus and he went south. And he went into Arabia to a place called Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, the place where the law was given to Moses and where the nation of Israel was formed. The place where God sent Elijah when Elijah was ready to commit suicide. And now the place that Paul was there. Do you know how long he spent there in in Mount Horeb? Three Three years. And so the revelation that was made to him of the mystery. Now, this is a big thing for Paul because Paul's a Jew. In fact, he was a Jew's Jew. He was everything a Jew should be and more, a Jew on steroids. And, And now what? You're changing? You're not using the nation of Israel anymore? You're putting them on the shelf? And you're starting this new thing called the church? Yes, Paul, that's what we're doing. And I want you to be a part of it. And Paul said, yes. So understand as we go in there, he says that by this revelation was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not known by the sons of men. Prior generations did not know it as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Now, some people want to say, well, prophets, that means the ones in the Old Testament. No, that meant the New Testament prophets. The gift of prophecy was given to a number of people, including a number of the apostles themselves. And that's what they're talking about. I mean, is Paul a prophet? All you got to do is read uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Is John a prophet? Was Peter even a prophet? Peter, Peter talks about global warming. You know, when the earth's going to just be burned up. It's not, you know, it's not, not a gradual process as far as Peter's concerned. You have a question, Julie. The Essenes had the school of the prophets. And I don't know how far the Essenes were involved. When we get to the study of Elijah, which is what we're going to do next, we'll talk about the school of the prophets. And they were located at Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And we'll understand what that is, because basically it was like a seminary. And if you're going to have a seminary, what do you have to have? Books and teachers. And she gives me that smile. All right. Now, what was the motivation that God would have to keep this a mystery? Well, when the Messiah comes, Israel is faced with a choice, is it not? Are they going to accept their Messiah or reject their Messiah? Now, if you were to talk to Daniel... See, that's no choice. Of course, they're going to accept their Messiah. We've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. But when you get to somebody like Annas or Caiaphas, you find that things have changed and they rejected the Messiah. But if you were told in advance, well, you're going to reject the Messiah. You see, that has a chilling effect on your decision. Well, if God says we're going to reject it, what choice do we really have? So it was kept a mystery so that they could make their own decision to choose, accept or reject. Now, the nation as a whole rejected, but there was a group who didn't, and that changed everything. And so off we went, but God had to protect that opportunity. You see, God gave Israel and everyone in Israel the free will to choose, 
And he is all about perfect, protecting free will. And that's what he was doing in creating or keeping this a mystery. So when we finished our study of verses 1 and 2, we had to conclude that both the Old Testament and the New Testament describe God's plan for judgment to be eternal, everlasting, unending. We talked at that at length last week. It will not end for those who are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, that's horrible, and it should motivate us to do whatever we can to help people see not to let that happen to people they know or even people they come in contact with. It should motivate us from a missionary point of view. Understand that the same words he talk, uses to talk about eternal punishment, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, those same words he uses to talk about the eternality of God, the eternality of heaven, and the eternality of you, of how long you're going to last, because you're going to live forever. And assuming you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you'll live forever with Jesus First in heaven for seven years. Now, you're only going to be in heaven for seven years. Then here in the millennial kingdom, when he redoes the earth here and forms a millennial kingdom, that's for a thousand years. And then he's going to completely obliterate the earth and completely rebuild it. And then there's been something Jesus has been working on. And it's called the New Jerusalem. And it's going to come down. And it's a city that's going to be suspended over the earth. And that's where we will live for the rest of eternity, with Jesus. You know that tree of life that was in the garden? You're going to get to eat from that tree. And, you know, Julie and I will be able to decide, well, you know, this last month we had this fruit and we made our pies and tarts from it, but we got a new fruit this month. And, the, you know, it's kind of like Harry and David, the fruit of the month. Every month this tree bears a different, well... We don't need to talk about that because I want to get to verse 3 because I want us to talk about this. What happens after the resurrection? What happens after the resurrection? I want you to look at verse 3 and let's read it carefully. It says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. Now, first, there's some problems with the translation here that I want you to see. The verb there in the first part, will shine. Will shine is the Hebrew word zahar. And zahar, it means to shine but it's in the hephil stem. Well, what in the world does that mean? It has a causative effect, a causative effect. It's also in the imperfect tense, which expresses an action, process, or condition which is incomplete in the present. What is it talking about? It's saying this is a cause. In other words, I would translate that those who have insight will be caused to shine brightly like the brightness of heaven will be caused because they had insight. What did that mean? That means, by the way, if you look at the second verb, which means to lead to righteousness, it also is a he feels stem. It's a participle, but it has the same concept of continuing action. So in both of these statements, there's a continuing action that is causal in nature. 
And one who has, is going to have brightness is because of their insight. These are people, in particular now he's talking about Jewish people, who will have insight to the scriptures and be able to share that insight with those around them. And there's a purpose for that. They will be able to teach others God's plan. They'll be able to share with others God's promise. And as a result, they will give them hope and strengthen their faith in this time of terrible distress that Israel's going to be facing in Daniel's 70th week. In addition to that, then, there are those who will lead the many to righteousness. Now, who are the many? Israel. You say, wait a second. They're only going to be sharing the gospel with, with Israelis, with Jewish people? Well, Daniel's prophecy is all about who? Israel. He didn't know anything about the church. So yes, that's what he's talking about. And those people are going to be rewarded. Now, let me ask you something. As you look at this verse, should the people they're talking about, the those, whether they have insight or the those who lead, is this something that should be strived for? I think so. It's teaching that. You see, these rewards are obviously striven for. Now, is the same thing true of the church? And the answer is yes. I think one of the first things that's going to happen after you're raptured, you're going to stand in judgment. And so, well, wait, wait a second, Doug. Hold on now. I've already been judged. Is that true? Have I already been judged? Oh, yes, it is. When was I judged? 33 AD. Every sin I have ever committed, the ones I'm going to commit today, and every sin I'm going to commit in the future have been paid for. Has only partially? In full. To Tetelestai. Our pastor loves saying that word. It is finished. It paid in full. It's, it's completely. I remember the highest grade I got in law school was in federal civil procedure. And at the end of the blue book, on the next page, I wrote in perfect Greek, Tetelestai. And I had a professor who was a big Shakespearean type of literature guy, and he liked that, I guess. And so I guess the highest grade I got in all law school. I'll never forget that. That was smart thinking on my part, I guess. <laughs> or else sassy, I don't know. But anyway, what has God promised about your sins? In Psalm 103:12, he says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgression from us. In another place, it says God's forgotten our sin because it's been paid for. So now, wait a second. If God is not, our sins have already been judged, what is he going to judge? Oh, that's a good question. That's what we're going to try and answer today. What has he judged? What is going on? Now, let me ask you something. This may be something that gets us a little off subject. It's something that concerns me. Does God give participation awards? You know, I can remember when my youngest son, the, the first time, my, my, I'm sorry, my oldest son, Barrett, played on a soccer team. At the end of the season, they gave everybody, we lost a bunch of games. But they gave everybody a trophy for participating. Now, my second son, Brooks, I don't know if he remembers this or not. I think he was like eight at the time. I had a talk with him before the end of the season because his team that year didn't do very well either. 
And so they called one by one to come up and get there. And as Brooks came, uh, they handed him, he looked at it, and he said, I don't think I want this. We didn't win. I was so proud of him. <laughs> then it makes it even worse. I went with Julie to a basketball game to my niece, and she was playing basketball, and she was really good. And their team won. And I can remember partway through, I said, what's the score? Oh, we don't keep score. You don't keep score? Is this America or what? <laughs> well, these days, you may be right. But what I'm trying to say is that's not the way God looks at it. That's not the way that God looks at it. There is another judgment for believers. Let me read you a couple of passages. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now that sounds at the end like, well, you may get judged for being bad. No, but I'm going to have to explain that so that you understand. But I want you to look at this a second. Who is going to be included in this judgment? All of us. Now, when they judge, will I get to be there with my church and be judged as the church? Well, what about as just this class? Well, will Julie and I stand there together as a family? No, just me. Then her. And then you. One at a time. Each individual judgment. Look at it again in Romans 10, 14. Be private. That's a good question, and I don't know for certain. If it's not private, you get up there, I'll turn around and not look or hear anything. I'm glad to hear that, and I will do the same for you. But I'm, I've got something, I've got something to, to talk to you about in relation to that in just a minute, and we'll see if we answer that question. I don't Be want to go there. But go you don't have a choice. <laughs> no choice, no. So... Romans 14, 10, and 12. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, you, why do you regard your brother with him? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So if we're not going to be judged based on our sins, for which Jesus was judged, what is the basis of this judgment? Let me give you an example in a passage in Matthew. I want you to look at this passage carefully. Uh, it's Matthew 25, 23. And his master said to him, well done, good and successful slave. You, have, you were successful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into my joy of my master. You see how that's working? Now, I have some of you who's got a little look on your face. I did this intentionally, you know, as lawyers. We do things like this. I wanted to demonstrate what the main media does in our nation today, whether they say somebody walked out of a 20-minute interview when really he was there for an hour, or whether they edit things and you got to watch them carefully, because it doesn't say successful here or here in Matthew 25. 20. Show them what it says, Jerry. Faithful. That's what he's going to judge on. Well done, good and faithful slave. Yes, Vera. I thought that was your translation. The King James says faithful. Yeah, that's not my translation. Well, I was the one who changed it. You can see New American Standard says faithful. 
thing James says, servant, right? Mine says slave. Doulos means slave. Now, you think that was funny. I've got something for you coming. Consider 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before time, but wait until the Lord who comes will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from him or from God. Now, I want you to think about this real quick for just a second. You think hidden in darkness. Well, that must be something bad. No, it's not. But there's a lot of people who have done things, and they just don't tell anybody. I can remember after my dad passed away, people would come up to me and say, you know, your dad was really a great man. He did this and this. And to myself, I think, I didn't know that. He never told me. He never told anybody. But those things will be disclosed. The things that nobody else knows. But they will also disclose the motives. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But I want you to look now at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. For if any man's work which he has built on remains, it will receive a reward. But if the man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, even as through the fire. This is the fire that it talks about in John 15, where it's talking about the vine and the branches, which we'll talk about here in, in a second. But I want you to see that there are certain things that we did or have done that didn't have the right motivation. They would appear to be good things, not in God's view. Rena? Doug, when you're talking about this other judgment of believers, is that the BMC? Yes. When it says, where you saw in those verses past, where it says the judgment seat of Christ, that's the beam seat of Christ. That's the, the Greek word that they have transliterated into an English form. So are we going to stand before the great white throne judgment and the seat, or do you believe we stand We will be standing behind the great white throne, observing, but we will not be judged in the great white throne. Only unbelievers. Yes? Well, if a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years... Don't you think God can compress it? And it, it may seem like you're in there forever, sweating bullets, and you come out and they say, well, you were in there for a couple of seconds. You know, God, God can control it. He, he's got this down and he's got a plan. He doesn't, John. Because in the uh, things hidden in the darkness, that's just referring to good actions. I believe it's good actions. Now, there will be rewards for everyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Everyone will be resurrected at the rapture. Who put the, You will be resurrected. You will be given a resurrection body that is amazing. And it's unlike everything you've ever experienced. This resurrection body that is going to be yours. You will be granted 
everlasting life as a part of the bride. You will be married to Jesus for eternity. You'll be the, I have a hard time even saying these things. We'll be the queen. You know, Cindy says, yeah, that's fine to be the queen. I, I have a little problem. I don't see myself as a queen. But, you know, but there will be other rewards that are earned by some and not all. Now, I don't want you to think the things I just said are the only awards, the only benefits of being saved. You know, we could go on forever talking about those. But there will be other rewards that will be earned by some and not others. For the most part, they're going to be crowns. And there's five of those crowns. I'm not going to read each of the passages because of our time, but let me explain these crowns to you. The first one is called the imperishable crown, and it's awarded to those who gain mastery over the flesh. Mastery over the flesh. I'm certain that this is one I probably will not receive. But you say, well, wait, these people are going to be sinless? No, but they're going to sin a whole lot less than most. Mastery over the flesh. A second crown that's going to come is the crown of righteousness. And it's awarded to those who long for the Lord Jesus to come back to us. My mother will wear that crown. There are others of us in here who will wear that crown. The crown of righteousness longing for his return. There's the crown of life. It will be awarded to those who have endured trials here on earth. Some of those trials lead to death. Some people call this the martyr's crown, but it's more than just being martyred. Enduring trials, the crown of life. Then there's the crown of glory. Those who have faithfully shared their faith, awarded this crown of glory, will have faithfully shepherded God's people. You say, well, I know who those are. Those are pastors, right? No, it's not limited to pastors. It's not limited to pastors at all. There may be someone who have formed ministries in here who will receive that crown because they're shepherding, they're counseling people. I've, ta- I've heard, not talked to specifically, but heard from a number of pastors who say this is not limited. I went to a theologian, had lunch with one. I asked him, don't you think this is more than just pastors? Well, yeah, you look at the word. People who minister to other people, people who have cared for or shepherded members of the flock, Those are people who will receive this crown. And one final crown that will be given out is the crown of rejoicing. Some people call this the soul winner's crown. I know specifically that there's a number of people in this class who will receive this crown. And they have given this because they've led others to salvation that their Lord gives so freely. There's another type of question. Just a few days ago, I was listening to this exact same thing, five crowns, and that was David Jeremiah on his media. I, I even wrote it down. I said, I can't listen to him. You've already got the list. Huh? Well, I'm assuming David was right. I'm just kidding. Now, yes, Kim. In Revelation 1, 6 is only a part of the verse, but it says, well, in verse 5, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood, he has made, he ha- and he has made us to be a kingdom priest and, and so a kingdom of priests we're talking he's talking right here by looking that word up it says that we are going to be kings and queens there now I, we will have uh, back in revelation right there i suppose we could have more than one crown or one crown but we're going to be a special people we will have a position of uh, based on how we have lived 
as far as being in charge of certain areas, maybe of cities, we'll be probably go back to city-states, you know, like every city had a king. But these crowns, not everyone will get. You have to qualify, and, you have, and you're going to see you have to strive for them. The revelation says that. But I don't think it's indicating that everybody's going to get a crown. I'm not saying they do. I'm just saying it's hard to not say that by reading that verse right there. Well, when we get to the expressions of how it's gained here in a little bit, I think you may change your mind. But let's look at one other thing, how you're going to get. And this is in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. There's going to be a reward. And verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, here's what it could be. We could have a situation, and this is purely hypothetical, that let's say Chris uh, comes out in a beautiful, radiant, white linen tuxedo. Frank comes out in a beautiful three-piece white suit. Uh, the shoes are white, and they're just so shiny, you can't even take your, your eyes off them. Patsy, Kathy come out with these beautiful white gowns. Kim comes out with a pair of white running shorts, and that's all. <laughs> Do you see what we're kind of talking about? Gary, you had a question. He could be talking about Jerusalem, and this would be the principle of plunder. If you go back to, like... Uh, you mean here in Revelation 19? Go back to uh, Isaiah, like Isaiah 54. This could, be, this could be talking about Jerusalem in the context. Well, it is talking about the marriage of the Lamb, which I consider to be the church, and his bride has made herself ready. But if you look at the New American Standard, if you look at the Greek... That word bride is actually the word woman. That's the same word, woman, that's used in chapter 17. Maybe, but when you're saying this, the word can be translated bride, can be translated female or woman. But here, it has the possessive pronoun before it, his. His woman. And you have to ask, well, who is his woman? It's Jesus' woman, the Lamb's. The Lamb's woman is not Jerusalem or, or Israel, it's the church. Amen. Now, if you think differently, that's fine. All right. They will be using those crowns as a means of praising and thanking God, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, if we have time, we need to understand that the judgment seat of Christ needs to be kept in a proper perspective. Yet, well, there are some people have lots of awards and some have practically none. To focus on the sorrowful aspect of this judgment would be really to bring shame and failure into heaven. Refuse to consider the loss would make faithfulness unimportant. I tried to think of a way to explain it. Imagine for a second that there was a great war and the right side, those who believed in freedom and the ability to, to worship how you want, won the war. But there was a lot of death and carnage and they're coming back. Some people may receive special commendations or promotions as a result of what they did in the war. Others may receive medals for valor or bravery. But everyone coming back, they're really just thankful that they're coming back alive and get to be reunited with their families. That's the concept here of how I think we will be when, at the end of this judgment. 
So let's look at a summary real quick, and then I want to talk about how God views our seeking these rewards. A summary of this coming judgment. So we remember it. Number one, the judge will be Jesus Christ himself. Can you ever say to him, no, that's not the way that happened? No. Those being judged will be his church. That is, every believer who was born again in the dispensation of the church. The judgment will occur in heaven, and it will be held after the rapture. Now, I found three examples of how God is going to view judging here and looking at it. An athletic contest, number one, as an example. Number two, a stewardship. Number three, a building of an edifice. Those three examples. And so let's take our time here real quick and look at them. The athletic contest is found in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Now, is God going to say we need to hold up so everybody can cross the finish line at the same time? He says, no, run in such a way that you may win. I want you striving for what I want you to obtain and what I want you to do. I don't want you resting on laurels. I want you striving. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. I knew a guy named Jim Montgomery in 1980. He set the world's record in the 50-meter freestyle. I got to be in his all-star swimming club for a little while, a while back, a while back, 30 years back. But anyway, I got to talk to him about his training regimen and what he did in preparing for the Olympics. And it was amazing to me what he didn't get to do. Even like, no, I was never going to eat a ham sandwich during that time. I said, well, that's probably because you don't like ham. No, I love ham. But I couldn't eat a ham sandwich, Doug. That would just break my training. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way uh, as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified. Now you see that word discipline there, discipline my body? There were some translations that used to translate it, I buffet my body. But... They changed that because people kept misunderstanding and thought he was saying, I buffet my body. And so it's discipline, control. What he's talking about is, I am going to reward those who run as fast as they can run. One of the things, I had one son who was very gifted athletic and another son who was not quite as gifted. And that son, if he was getting beaten, he would just stop. I had to teach him, you don't quit. You run to the finish line. What I'm concerned with, I would say, is not how fast everybody else ran, but how fast you ran. Did you run your best race? That's what you need to run. That's what we need to do. Will there be people who can run faster than us? We have to run our best race because it's, you're going to see in a minute, God grades on the curve. Now you think, wait a second, he doesn't grade. Yeah, it's a special divine curve. You see, it's your curve. What could you have done compared to what you did? Do you see that? A second thing here, a stewardship. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. 
For in this case, whoever it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. How have you used what God has given you? We're going to talk a little more about that in just a second. A third example is a building or constructing an edifice. It's found in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What do we know about wood, hay, and straw? Highly combustible. Gold, silver, precious stones? Not at all. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So in understanding these judgment goals of our Lord and Savior, let's look at four of them, I think. Number one, each of us will be considered individually. This concept of a divine curve. What opportunities has God given you? What opportunities has God given me? Now, I want you to think about this a second. Let me try and explain to you. Let's say God gave me 10 opportunities, and I was successful, I was faithful in five of them. Now, let's say with Julie, he gave Julie three opportunities, and she was faithful in two of them. Who scores higher? Julie. She got two-thirds. I just got half. You see, that's that kind of divine curve I'm talking about. The opportunities and what we were willing to do with them. Number two, we'll be judged on the basis of stewardship. Now, some of you might be thinking out there, you know, he's talking up there. God's given him a lot. But I don't have much. Not at all. What that does, if that's true, is make it easier for you. Because there's three things that you have. You have time. You have talent. And you have treasure. You may say, well, you know, he has much more talent than I have. She has much more treasure than I have. That doesn't matter. It's what do you do with what God has given you? Now, one thing we're all equal in for the most part is time. What have you, is time valuable? Absolutely. What have you done with the time he's given you? I'm not going to answer that, but I want you to think about that. Now, a third thing that we will be judged on is... Not as much our acts, but our motivation for those acts. I want you to remember a story in John. Well, I'm just going to read it to you. We'll, we'll take the time that we need to finish this. In John 12, 3 through 6. And Mary took a, a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrance of perfume. I want you to see that a second. This passage here is used as a comparison or a teaching tool for what we will be doing with our crowns. That crown you win will be extremely valuable. And yet all you will want to do is give it to Jesus. Somehow to praise him and thank him for what he did. And that you are not going into the lake of fire. And this way, but Judas spoke up. And I want you to see what, in verse 4 what Judas said. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
and said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, is that not a good thing that Judas wanted to do? Well, yes, it was. Poor people need help. And if we have an excess, we ought to be able to use it to help them. This clearly was quite of an excess. Would Judas be rewarded for this position? No, because look at the last part of that verse. Now, he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. You see, God knows the motivation. You may do something, and all of us say, gee, what she did was wonderful. God says, no, it's not. No, it's not. Or I knew his heart, and it was not. So the judgment will be on motivation. That's where we really hope nobody else can see. Because our motivations many times are not what they should be. Well, we can only say that about ourselves. We certainly can't judge. No, we won't be. There's no way to judge anybody about their motivation. No, Jesus can. I see, I see I'll tell you, we, we do that a lot, though. We do do that a lot. And maybe sometimes we're right, sometimes we're not. But I want, I want to see Jesus, you know, we think, we ne- you never know for certain when we are judging somebody, even if we're as a judge. You just don't know for certain. But Jesus does. And this will be the one true judgment of these things. Let me give you another example of this motivation thing. In Philippians 1, 15 to 17, Paul says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress and imprisonment. The name that comes to my mind would be Jim and Tammy Baker or Marjo Goy, Goy, whatever his last name was. You know, they would preach a great deal. People seemed to respond. The motivation was wrong. Motivation was not right. And God will judge based on that. And to me, God's thinking, you do what you try to say is a good act, which is really motivated the wrong way by evil, that's worse to me than doing something bad. Now, that's my take on it. One last thing or criteria here in this judgment. We will be judged on our reliance on the grace of God. Some of us have had to learn, many of us have had to learn really the hard way. Human effort doesn't cut it. Human effort doesn't please God. When we need to come to understand that. Human efforts are never pleasing to him. Look, let's look quickly at John 15, 5 and 6, the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them in the fire, they are burned. Has anybody in here ever had an orange that is picked at its height of freshness, is allowed to stay on the tree until it's perfectly ripe, and then you pick it, and you juice it, or you eat it, and you get to drink that juice. And it's amazing. I can remember Julia and I one time were at a breakfast place, and they had blood orange juice. I don't know if you've ever seen blood oranges. They're awesome. But, and to drink that, and it was picked when they're perfectly ripe, Julie said, are you you just going to make your whole breakfast on that orange juice? But I couldn't stop drinking it. 
What did the branch that produced that orange have to do? Just be the branch plugged into the orange tree. It's not there saying, ah, oranges, I need oranges. No, wasn't doing that. It just would happen. When you abide in him, you're just relying on him. He will produce the fruit. He doesn't need your effort. He just needs your faithfulness. Relationship, and during that relationship, like I have with my wife, we learn from each other. There's that's a dewdrop. You probably more than she, but no problem. But that is a dewdrop in an ocean right there. Abides in me, and I in him. That is millions of volumes of information that we get from our Savior. That right there, that's when we bear much fruit when we're. When we're communicating with him. It's not the branch that's doing it. It's the vine that's doing it. That's the clear thing. It's that concept of reliance on his grace. He will produce if we will just rely. But many times I know there's more important things I've got to do than just rely. I've got to do this and I've got to work at this and I've got to. And human effort, our plans are not what God wants. God wants us producing his fruit, not our fruit. And, and you're right. So a few final thoughts before we finish. What does God really want from us? Yep. I think in all of this about judgment, I'm constantly reminded that Jesus is the perfect judge with perfect judgment. He is. He's not wrong, and we can't even question it. And we need to keep that in mind. It's, it's not going to be... <laughs> not going to be an argument. There's not going to be a defense... No negotiations. That's another thing. No, nope. we will know exactly what he says will be the facts and there'll be nothing to change it. It will be accurate. And yet we know that the judge loves us, loves us more than anybody else. And the universe loves us. So what does God want from us? He wants a commitment to obedience, but he wants our obedience to be motivated well, motivated by what? He's given us four factors. We've talked about this before, but before we finish, I want to just remind us of those. Number one, faith. We need to be able to trust. You know, it's easier to obey someone who you can trust. If you think he might be trying to take advantage of you, then you don't want to obey him. But if you can trust him that he won't, that he'll do what's best for you, it's easier to obey him. Secondly, love. If you know the one you're supposed to obey loves you sincerely, it's easier to obey because you know that he will want what's right for you, what's best for you, because he loves you. If you know him, know him experientially, you've come to see how faithful obedience, loving obedience bears fruit. And so you, as you gain in your knowledge of him, it's easier to obey because you know him and what kind of person he is. And finally, if you fear him. Now, some people think that means to be afraid. No, I'm not talking about being afraid. The best example of it, I guess I could say, is the relationship I had with my earthly father. As growing up a little bit, I did fear because he had this alligator belt he would wear. And there were a few times, no, a few is probably not, I, mean, I need to not lie when I'm up here. Uh, there were times when that imprint would be uh, on me. I think you, I don't need to go into that anymore. You all understand exactly what I'm talking about. And I could remember thinking sometimes as I was learning discipline 
Now, there's going to come a time when he can't make me do that. And I can't wait. But as time came, when that time did come, it would hurt me more not to please him. And I learned what the fear of respect was. And in the same way, that's the way God wants it to be for us. And when you learn those motivational factors, obedience becomes much easier. Without them, it's extremely hard. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we could get together and understand or seek to understand your word. Help us to understand, Father, that there is a judgment coming and that we want to be fully clothed. We want to be pleasing to you. That we want not as much to be glad to receive the rewards that you're going to give to us, but that we pleased you enough that you want to give them to us. Help us, Father, to utilize our opportunities and the time and the talent and the treasure that you give us in a way that's pleasing to you. Help us to be prepared, but help us to learn also to rely on your grace and let you work through us. Pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Doug. Well, we've really heard a really great lesson, bringing us so much information of what is happening now and what will happen in the future, maybe even the very near future, as Jesus returns to catch us away from what the world has become. And do you notice that all this lesson came from just one verse? Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. This is the kind of teaching that we enjoy and look forward to each and every Sunday in the Believer's Bible class. Doug Brady is professionally an attorney, but as I always say in the opening of the lesson, he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. And today you heard that very completely. Next week we will go further into this 12th chapter of the book of Daniel. The Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building, a part of the First Baptist Church in downtown Dallas, Texas. We invite you to join us whenever you are in the area. And thank you for listening to this lesson. It's our privilege and desire that the Word of God be spread far and wide with deep teaching of the Scriptures. We will look forward to presenting you with more teaching next week. May God richly bless you in these perilous times.